The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. Everyone's mental health journey is different. Our journeys are shaped through a mix of nature and nurture, genetics, our different lived experiences, families of origin, gender, how we see ourselves in the world, and how other people see us. This means that our mental health diagnoses like depression and anxiety have complex roots. There's no blood test to figure out the exact issue you have or even where it came from. You might get the impression on your journey to better mental health that if only you meditated a million hours a day or you became a master of mindfulness, everything would be fine, right? Wrong. Just as our mental health issues and our concerns are a complicated web made up of layers, so too are how we help ourselves feel better. The different modalities we use, practices, and medications. And so while today's guest, yes, is a master of mindfulness and an expert meditator, not to mention a certified yoga instructor, he also says that medication and therapy have helped him work wonders as he dealt with issues that ran in his family and that he struggled with for some time. Nor, does he say, is his journey over. And I think that is such a powerful message to hear. For Anu Gupta, the path to mental health comes from many threads, better understanding of brain chemistry, family, life experiences, and identity. And I was so excited to speak with him about the journey that he's on, which many of you will probably relate to. A quick warning for listeners that we do talk about suicidal thoughts and some serious issues in this episode. And now, my conversation with Anu Gupta, scientist, educator, lawyer, and the founder of Be More with Anu. So welcome, Anu. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to have you. I want to hear your story. Let's start with when you were five years old. Where were you and what was happening in your, in your family and in your five-year-old life? When I was five, I was actually in Old Delhi in India. And the year was 1990. So I'm trying to think what was happening I think I was, as a young kid, I just found everything so magical hmm. um, wherever I went. And the neighborhood we were a part of is over a thousand years old. So there's just so much history and diversity everywhere. I think for me as a young child, I was just mesmerized by the colors of, you know, the different festivals and rituals that were taking place. And my grandmother, who was a very devout Hindu woman, would observe a lot of the changing of the seasons. You know, I remember that one of the holidays is something known as Holika, which is 
now very popular in the U.S. too, Holi, which mm-hmm. is where we throw color at each other, welcoming spring. The day before that particular festival, um, there is a huge kind of a funeral pyre that's kind of placed in every neighborhood. And, you know, folks just come in and burn like all of their regrets and all of the challenges they confront in life. I love the idea of I, I burn regrets on the solstice twice a year. Oh, wow. Um, but you didn't stay in Delhi. You Mm-mm. came to America with your folks. When did that happen? So when I was 10. Mm. So I had an uncle who um, immigrated here in the late 70s. And my parents were going back and forth, but they had a pretty established medical practice in India. Um, but I think in the 90s, they just were fed up by a lot of the bureaucratic challenges in the country. And so they thought that we could all move to America together and we would have a much more prosperous life, which actually, you know, to their credit, it is very different here than it would have been in India. How so? Well, first of all, um, I think that if I were still in India, I probably wouldn't have come out. Mm -hmm. So as a gay person, my life would have been very different in India versus here. And I don't even know if I would have known that I was gay because one of the things that, you know, I shared with folks that I actually don't, didn't know what the word gay was until I moved here. And until in middle school, I was being teased for being gay. Mm. And as someone who learned British English in India, I was like, gay? Like, what's wrong with being happy? And then this one kid, Eric, I remember him to this day, he like, saw me and he really pitied me. He was like, um, when you go home today, uh, please check the dictionary and let me know what you find out. So I did, this was seventh grade. And I looked up the dictionary and I found the word gay, homosexual. I was like, what does that mean? Someone who's attracted to the same gender or same sex. I was like, oh my God, that's me. There's a word for it. And then suddenly I also realized that it's not safe to be this thing. So it was kind of the dichotomy of kind of going into, well, not knowing what is in the closet because not even knowing words to describe what one feels, but then going into the closet and being scared of what that means in the world outside. (laughs) Wow. Do you think there was a part of your parents that knew and that wanted you to live more safely? I think so. I think so. I think they've struggled a lot in India. Um, They, you know, my family were relatively well off in India and we do come from the dominant caste. Mm -hmm. But that said, even though like we have ideas of caste systems as hierarchies, things are incredibly complicated in India when it comes to being able to fare well for oneself economically. Um, There are a lot of different political factions and political parties that make life challenging if you don't belong to the right tribe, the, the right in a political party. Mm-hmm. So the politics of just being there and then imagine being in a country with a billion people, right? <laughs> in a smaller <laughs> space. So they were just like, you know, like it might just be easier for us to like breathe more. And also they were missing their family that we, we have family in the U.S. So wanting to reconnect with them as well. Mm-hmm. Multiple reasons. And I'm really grateful that they did because um, it has changed the trajectory of my life because in India, because of just how deeply people are rooted in culture, and that's in any country, whether it's Italy or Ghana or Brazil, one tends to follow 
you know, the desires of one's parents and family. But I think coming to America and being exposed to these ideas of openness and freedom and, um, you know, what my desires are, I've been able to really chart a professional path that's very different from anyone else in my entire family. <laughs> well, let's talk about that because I, I know from, from reading about you that you come from a family of sort of classically high achievers. I think your mom is a surgeon. You said that your yeah. sister is a, quote, brilliant mathematician. So yeah. <laughs> checks a lot of our traditional boxes of, wow, these are smart, successful people. How, how did you fit in? Well, I think I grew up in a, in an environment where academic achievement and intellectualism wasn't just valued, but it was something, you know, something to be aspired and to grow oneself and one's spirit. Mm. And for me, that's literally why I sought, you know, education, you know, going to college and grad school and then law school. It was always like this love of learning. And through that pathway, it was never to like get a degree or be a professional for a job. Mm. It was really to satisfy this quench that I felt within. And I can see the same thing for my mother and my sister. Um, of course, they found professions that are incredibly fulfilling. But my mother, even though she's a surgeon, she came to surgery um, out of botany. She mm. loves plants. <laughs> like, you have no idea. And I think for me, it was the connection was really around people. You know, I shared with you the story of me growing up as a young child in Delhi and just being mystified and mesmerized by all the colors and the sounds and the smells. But one thing that I also noticed was there were so many different people where I lived. Like the religious diversity was mind boggling. Hmm. Of course, my family was one thing, but there were Muslims and Sikhs and Christians and Jews and, you know, Zoroastrians and Jains and Buddhists. And they were all living in the same space. And they were all following their own ways of being. And of course, add to that color and gender and other things. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, why do we do things this way and those people do it that way? And how do we live together, you know? Um, so I think for me, that was always interesting. And then when I saw conflict take place, that's where I was like, well, what's causing this conflict when at the end of the day, we're all the same organism? And I think my first contact with you know, conflict was in the early 90s, in 1992, there was a huge riot um, between Hindus and Muslims over a sacred site. And mm -hmm. I just remember being under curfew. We couldn't leave our homes. And there was like bombings and so many things happening everywhere. I was like, wow, like, from one moment, we're a stable, loving um, community to another where everyone distrusts one another. So you moved to, did you move to Brooklyn or Queens? We moved to Queens first and then moved to Brooklyn a few years after that. I mean, both also, I think Queens is literally probably the most diverse, one of the most diverse places probably in America, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that, that must have been, was there, was there a through line for you, do you think, coming to, to Queens versus a place that was more homogeneous? Yeah, it was, it was so fascinating because when I came here, once again, you know, this inquisitive mind, I was always curious about all the different people that were around me and how we all looked so different. I remember one of my really good friends um, in middle school was this guy named Jesus, and he's, his family was from Peru. And when I first saw him, I was like, you look like my cousin. How's that possible? Like, we look the same. 
Um, and we would talk about that for so long. And um, yeah, I think the religious diversity and the kind of racial and ethnic diversity was really exciting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think within that, I kind of lost myself. So, you know, you mentioned something about this being this achiever. So I was an achiever. You know, when I first came here, I was placed in ESL. But pretty quickly, my teachers realized that I spoke English very well. I could write English very well because I went to English medium school. So they transferred me to the gifted programs, whatever that means, right? These hierarchies we create even in our education system. But suddenly, I was the only brown person in my classroom. You know, if you remember growing up in those Uh, In such an environment, your classrooms are basically your community. Those are the people you interact with day in and day out. Well, they're the ecosystems, right, where you learn everything about the shoulds and the she does this and it's not good and he does this and it is good and all the patterns get formed. Exactly. And then a lot of the things that I learned unconsciously, you know, what what it means to be good, what it means to be bad, what it means to be competent, what it means to be incompetent, and the stereotypes that were circulating and for me, it was always, you know, surprised, like, why am I the only person here who looks like me? And, you know, the story was that I was gifted mm. and there's just so few of us. And I was like, is that really true? And it wasn't until college when I first began to really understand what was happening more systemically um, within our society. I worked for Teach for America as a recruiter um, and they literally drilled it into me, you know, just thinking about what educational inequities mean and, you know, the role of race, gender, and all sorts of human identities and how, you know, resources and opportunities are distributed in our society. So I think that kind of took me on a whole new quest of understanding how we could create a society where everyone has equal access to opportunity, regardless of their background or class, caste, you name it. I'm Jesse Hempel, host of Hello Monday. In my 20s, I knew what I wanted for my career. But from where I am now, in the middle of my life, nothing feels as certain. Work's changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of any of it. So every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. We talk about making career pivots, about purpose and how to discern it, about where happiness fits into the mix and how to ask for more money. Come join us in the Hello Monday community. Let's figure out the future together. Listen to Hello Monday with Jesse Hempel wherever you get your podcasts. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast, Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. At some point, though, when you were in New York, a new kind of feeling came in, an outsider feeling that you have said you actually internalized. You changed your name. You called yourself Andy. Or I don't know if you called yourself Andy. Tell us the story of how you went from sort of inquisitive anew to Andy who realized, "Uh uh-oh, I have to be different. (laughs) So it wasn't as intentional, right? It was basically I was 
Um, in high school, in ninth grade, I was volunteering at a hospital. You know, we did these things in high school. Again, part of being, you know, gifted. We have to do all these things, achieve all these things, <laughs> rack up all these volunteer hours. Got to go to the Ivy um, League. Yes, exactly. Um, so I was volunteering at a hospital and my supervisor, who was this wonderful person, wonderful human, she welcomed me, introduced me to, this, to the department. I was working in the Department of Cardiology. And then suddenly she was like, I can't pronounce your name. So I'm just going to call you Andy. Hmm. I was like, okay, call me Andy. And then I literally took that up. I was like, so like... The interesting thing was, I never thought there was anything wrong with that. I actually thought that the name Andy was more worthy than my name Anu. So that was the nature of this internalized, you know, what I call internalized bias, but really kind of succumbing to the stories of the dominant culture. Um, And that's what happened with my sexuality, you know, because I saw how I was being treated or other gay students were being treated I went into the closet and didn't come out for another 15 years. Um, Even though, you know, in college I was an RA and I was trained in like holding safe spaces for LGBTQ students. So it was so interesting, right? So I could be so open and accepting of others and actually wanting people to thrive, but having that fear and not wanting that for myself. When did you realize that you were an anxious person and that all these conflicting identities that you were holding mm-hmm. were making you anxious or or something was making you anxious. It's so interesting you ask this. That's why I'm so excited for this conversation because I was reflecting on that. And I think I first felt that taking my first standardized test. Hmm. Do you remember the PSAT? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> what is that? 14, you're 14? <laughs> yeah, 13 or 14. But this feeling of because again, I was a high achiever, yep. needed to achieve, had this destination. And I remember before taking the exam, you know, and of course I'd prepared for it and all of that, I wanted to throw up right mm. before the exam. And it was this visceral feeling in my body that I couldn't be there. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know what this is, but there must be something wrong with me. So I would just suppress it, suppress it, suppress it for years. And it wasn't until I saw my first first therapist. This was in grad school when I was, you know, in England. Um, So I was like 23 now that the, my kind of, they call them counselors there. Mm -hmm. She was such a wonderful British, very proper lady. I loved her. Um, She was like, you have anxiety. And the, the minute I heard those words come out of her mouth, It was like a dual feeling. One, relief. Once again, I have language to describe what I've been feeling for, you know, probably almost a decade at that point. And second, oh no, there's something wrong with me. Oh God. Were you still Andy at this point? Or when you were in England, were you like, where was your sort of sense of racial identity at this point? It was so interesting. My racial identity at the time was I'm Indian. Mm-hmm. Like I was, I was a citizen of the U.S., so I'm an American. And I was trying not to attract any attention towards my difference. Mm. So even my friends, and that's why I feel like after college, I went at a very unconscious level, went to all these programs. You know, I did the Fulbright in South Korea afterwards that were 
basically part of being an ambassador for the U.S., mm-hmm. but where I could blend in hmm. and not feel different. And have a lot um, of structure because you were also exactly. you were Teach for America, Fulbright. Did you go to the U.K. under a structured program for grad school? Um, I went to this kind of really incredible a master's program in development studies. Mm-hmm. So it's one of a kind, really rooted in humanism and really wanting to understand um, systems mm-hmm. and structures and not just like things like the World Bank or the IMF or governments, but things like gender mm-hmm. as a system and a structure. Um, we, we talked about ethnicity and nationality as systems and structures, and that really opened my mind up to how the world works. But being in this incredibly intellectual environment, I was at Cambridge, I also became alienated with who I am and didn't know how to use my mind to define who I am. And that I felt like threw me deeper and deeper into kind of the realms of anxiety and depression. (laughs) What do you mean when you say you don't know how to use your mind to define who you are? So, you know, as a young person, Um, I'm learning about how societies are structured, whether it's around gender or race, and how these structures really define people's identities. And in academia, there's this like air of, I would call it arrogance, where we look at these things from a distance, you know, as sociologists, anthropologists, that it doesn't apply to us. But for me, these were the issues I was struggling with inside all this whole time. So I couldn't not look at it. And whenever I would bring those up in the classroom, I would be told that that's not important. This is not what we're talking about. This is about, you know, this thing happening in Egypt or this thing happening in Pakistan. And for me, that's where I was like, okay, it's not about me. It's about, you know, the theory of how these things are structured. And that was the mishmash. Yep. And, um, of course, this program is preparing really incredible students to become future academics and, you know, intellectuals themselves. So I understood the impetus from where that's happening now. But at the time, it was very difficult. Thankfully, one of my classmates, who I uh, credit to this day, she was like, you are talking about really deep issues. You need to go see a therapist. And I was like, huh? What? I'm not crazy. Who do you think you are? How dare you? Right? (laughs) Was therapy a word in your family of origin growing up? It was. And, you know, I come from a family where mental illness is, you know, has been a challenge for decades and decades and decades. So I've seen it play out. But, you know, it's almost there's a sense of fear around it. Like mental illness is so taboo. It almost says that there's something wrong with the human being who has this challenge. It's better to deny it. Than, than to actually repair it or address the challenge at hand. And for me, going to therapy personally helped me identify what was happening in my family mm. and amongst my loved ones and hold those people with compassion. So, of course, not agreeing with or condoning their behavior or their words. But with that said, being able to see the human being that was suffering beneath that. So like every good narrative, you have a crucible moment where things burn. Um, How old were you when you sort of had that moment at at the 
at the windowsill anew. Yeah, it was 2009, so I was 24. It was back in New York. It was after the first year of law school. Wow. Um, so so you, you, you went from Cambridge to law school. Yeah. What was the vision? I just absolutely loved my time at Cambridge. It was um, so intellectually fulfilling. And once again, diversity. You mm-hmm. know, my, class, my classmates in my program came from every continent across the world. And we were always, we were all like misfits in our, in our countries and our communities, whether we were in Brazil or Nigeria or France or someplace else. So it was like a place where we found each other and we could talk about big ideas and um, engage with each, with each other in this way. And I also was seeking therapy there for the first time. But coming to law school, I came to law school because um, actually my advisor at Cambridge, you know, basically told me that your, grade, your grades aren't bad, but you're too much of an activist to be an academic. You know, going back to me sharing about myself and wanting to, you know, actually create solutions to things. And it's like, that's a great thing, but you can't work with theory, you know, and you're going to be miserable. So I would recommend you go to law school. So that's why I went to law school. And actually what really attracted me to law school was when I'd come back for kind of the admitted students days, um, I went to NYU and um, there was a professor in NYU who spoke and I was like in tears. And this professor, I feel like everyone knows who he is now. If they don't, they should. I'm Brian Stevenson. Huh. So he spoke and I was like, I want to be where he is. <laughs> um, but of course, first, first year of law school, you don't see Brian Stevenson. You have to go through like all, all right. the mandatory courses. And it's like, it's like the Hunger Games. <laughs> <laughs> and where was, where was your anxiety and depression at this point? Because it sounds um, like this was a mentally... off the roof. Yeah. So what happened? Um, so it was just suppressed, right? So... In England, I was seeing a counselor. I was doing a lot of self-work, and I was also just feeling like I belonged mm-hmm. in law school because the way the system is structured is very Socratic mm-hmm. so it's, and also very hierarchical. There's a right and a wrong, and which kind of went against everything I was doing prior to coming to law school. So I think I just kept on suppressing things one after another, one after another, one after another. And you also have like hundreds of pages, pages of reading every day, um, and you're talking about things that are like life and death, like criminal law. I remember taking criminal law um, my second semester and, of course, horrific things like that are happening um, when you read the facts of the case. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I could relate to some of those things, like the human things um, around violence and anger and, you know, all sorts of abuse. I was like, wow, like I could have been that person. You know, so like you think about these things, but you have no outlet to actually share these emotions because we're just looking at it very clinically in the legal environment. So I think those like everyday kind of incidents, both in the classroom and outside kind of and not being able to talk about it and share it with others really accumulated. The summer between my first and second year was wonderful. It gave me a t- some time to rest and reflect and kind of rejuvenate my spirits. But when I got back, the environment was the same. And, you know, just constantly questioning myself around who I am. And it was also, I was one of the only people of color um, in our, in my section. And everybody around me was 
they were all good people, but they couldn't understand why I was so frustrated. You know, why are you so angry? Why? So they would say these things. And again, in hindsight, I'm like, I don't think there was any ill will, but my kind of my emotional reaction to that was like, yeah, why am I so angry? There must be something wrong with me. Let me just end this thing now. Like, I'm just so unhappy, right? So it's like that um, pressure cooker that's boiling up. And for me, what I've learned since, and, you know, like you, I'm a student of mindfulness. And thankfully, since college, I've been practicing mindfulness, not very consistently. But, you know, that last, I would say the, the year until I started having real thoughts around suicide and attempting to take my life, I wasn't practicing it. Um, but with that said, you know, that's why the, I feel like there's a magic to this particular practice, because when I was about so basically i was living in kind of a high rise in new york city it was on the 18th floor and something happened it was like early or mid-september um i was like let me just what would happen if i just jump out of this building right now it's like open the window it was like oh i can totally do that and i'm like okay let's just do it so i'm literally standing and i'm like looking at the little cars below um as they're passing by, you could hear the sirens. And in that moment, that was the flash of like moment of mindfulness where I was like, oh, wow, like all these ideas that I've been struggling with about myself, about the world and how unfair the world is and how unjust the world is and how cruel the world is. They are just ideas. It wasn't even that long. Like it takes longer to describe it in words, but it was in that moment I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And then instead of jumping, I thought to call someone I had just met a few days prior, a total stranger, a queer woman, Asian American, with whom I just built a connection. Um, I called her and she showed up in my apartment in less than five minutes. She happened to be in that neighborhood. Wow. <laughs> at that time. That's wow. And it's funny because I've actually thought of her and I've texted her many times and she came in, came into my life for that reason. Um, cause I remember she, when she was your Robin, angel. Yeah. Yeah. Cause when Robin Williams passed away, um, I was a mess Mora. You don't understand. Like, I was like, Oh my gosh, what? Like, I love this guy. Like, I can't believe he was suffering. And, and it just took so much out of me. And I had to like, be like, Hey, like this could have been me and you saved me. <laughs> And I remember receiving like two hearts from her. <laughs> oh, that's very millennial and new. Um, <laughs> I'm old, so I'm thinking of, you know, It's a Wonderful Life and Clarence the Angel and the Christmas tree. <laughs> that's my, my old frame of reference. So I, I want to talk a little bit about, um, because obviously hindsight is a powerful thing and you tell your story for a living. So you're very skilled at weaving together all these threads. But um, one of the things that I've read about you um, that I found very moving was that you have described your sort of journey back from that moment of despair as, a, as almost a process of um, building connection, that you had closed yourself off from se a sense of belonging to who you truly were in so many ways, right? And, um, and that part of the work was figuring out the threads of your own identity 
and who you needed to connect with to be your real true self. Does that, is that, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, but I find that very powerful. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I, and that is my journey even to this day. Like it hasn't completed. I'm still kind of returning back to the fullness of who I am and discovering those pieces and celebrating them. So as you were sharing, I remember, you know, it was, I was part of a lot of very inclusive circles. I had friends who were, you know, across the alphabet city. And I knew I was gay, right, from the time I was very young. But, you know, after this incident, I really went to do the work and, you know, went to therapy and sought a lot of healing methodologies. And then really struggled with why is it so hard for me to come out, you know, particularly to my family, my parents, what were the stories? You know, what were the fears? And this is where I began to see the play of depression and anxiety, you know, right in front of my eyes, inside my body. So depression was really, for me, experiences that were traumatic. So trauma I define as anything that's life-threatening or emotionally overwhelming. So it was in the past, things that have happened to me and I'm still holding on to them, that caused me depression. And anxiety was the future, Mm. fearing that what happened to me in the past is gonna happen to me again in the future. And I was literally, and I oftentimes still am, because you know it's not something that just goes away. Depression and anxiety is something we have to live with, right? But I just see myself kind of like on a pendulum between the past and the future, and that's like depression and anxiety. And and once really, you've felt it, that bad, like once the depression has been that bad, there yeah. is also the fear that you will feel this bad again. And how can you yeah. possibly get through it again? Exactly. And that, you know, mindfulness really brought me to see it, particularly after law school. So the coolest thing was once this happened, thankfully, you know, I sought help. And actually in law school, I became a trained yoga teacher. <laughs> I did about 200 hours with another uh, law student friend of mine. Of course of mine. you did. <laughs> um, and I, t- I kid you not, you know, I was spent 200 hours at a yoga studio doing yoga and learning meditations and all these things. My grades are the best they've ever been. Wow. <laughs> and I wasn't studying very much, but I was present, you know? I was like, oh my gosh, I am present. And you've, so, um, you've also said that your shoulders went from being like permanently up around your ears to going down. Yeah. You I know, love this that. Act, it was in a yoga class. It was with a teacher named Douglas. Um, he, he used to teach at the studio called Ishta Yoga. And I was like, it was like my first year, you know, really getting into yoga. And suddenly I like felt my shoulders fall. And I remember, you know, when I was in Korea, I used to do mixed martial arts there. And before we started practicing, you know, our instructor, our teacher used to like pull my shoulders down. Yeah. Like he would literally be like punching me on my shoulders, like relax, relax. And I was like, what are you doing? That's not going to move. Oh my gosh. But Maura, that was the amount of stress I was carrying in my body. And I was oblivious to it. (laughs) And you also, you went on antidepressants. Yes. It was basically kept me from thinking. (laughs) You know, as an achiever, you can imagine I was addicted to thinking. (laughs) So... And I think for me, it was life and death, right? It was right after um, I attempted to jump off or I thought about jumping off. 
It was the next day I went to the counseling center, as I promised to my friend I would do, kept in touch with her about it. Um, and then they basically referred me to a psychiatrist and I talked to her and she this, she told me all the side effects and the pros and cons. And, you know, my parents are doctors, right? So in the past, I would talk to my parents about all of these things. But this time around, like something inside me told me, don't do that, you know, because of just how much taboo there is around this topic. I knew that they would dissuade me. And I was like, no, really? I can't. Did they I know can't. about your suicidality? No. I wow. told them like three years later when I was ready. <sighs> yeah. So nobody knew. But I worked with this incredible therapist. And um, she was an EMDR expert. Um, so EMDR st- stands for Eye Movement Desensitization something R. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> yes. Sorry. I mean, I just call it MDR. But basically what it is, is that it's, um, they don't know why or how it works, but they know that it really helps with healing traumatic memories and trauma, mm. particularly in the past. And the way it works is that either you use tapping on different parts of your brain while you're thinking of a traumatic memory or incident from the past, um, or what she would do with me is actually hold like electrical nodes in my hands while I'm like moving my eyes around. Again, I don't know. They scientists haven't really figured out what the, why it is, but they have theories and it makes sense based on my lived experience. Basically when I'm thinking of those traumatic incidents in the past, I mean, prior to doing EMDR, I wouldn't even want to think about it. Mm. Right. Cause I would get so anxious and scared But while I'm doing it with, of course, someone I trust in the room, knowing that I'm holding something that I could feel, right, whether it's tapping or electrical node, I'm in the present while I'm watching something awful happening in the window of my mind and knowing that I'm safe. So that association of fear for me was kind of slowly, um, what's the word? It was um, weakened. And I think that helped. And then... My therapist at the time, she basically said, you have to share your story with 10 people in the next three weeks. I was like, what? I can't do that. It's like, no, you are going to ask friends or whomever, 10 people in your surroundings right now. You're going to go out for lunch and share your story with them. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like um, they're going to. She's like, yeah, some people are going to take it very poorly. Some people are going to take it very well. Some people may not be your friends anymore. That's not the point. You're ready to do that. And that's when I started sharing my story, Maura. And I realized how common it is, how common anxiety and depression are, and how it's torturing all of us. And we're just kind of seeking connection to talk about it, you know? (laughs) When did the concept of racial trauma, because that's something that you use in in your work a Mm -hmm. lot as a framework, when did that framework come to you as something you had experienced and and could put words behind? So, you know, I became really passionate about kind of racial equity and gender equity as I was going through my own healing journey, because I started seeing that a lot of the ideas I believed about myself Mm -hmm. that were unwholesome and that were you know, cruel, kind of were going back to 
you know, the color of my skin, my facial features, and a lot of things that I've been told as a, my name, my Indian heritage. And then I, as a big nerd, I went to the science and <laughs> that's where I began seeing that there was a lot of research around the trauma of racial bias, of racism, and a lot of scholars have written about it. So I, sh- I should also just point out, yeah. from what I've read, I mean, a lot of, you grew up in New York around 9-11. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you've said that that sort of bias in the air was also a factor. It accumulated, right? So prior to 9-11, um, I was kind of another. So it's so interesting, even though New York is such a, has been such a diverse melting pot. In the 90s, like, you were still like black, white, or other. <laughs> <laughs> so like, to be a child and, you know, check the box other, like, what? <laughs> That's it's right. So literally right? other. <laughs> other. It's like other, like you're something else, right? Miscellaneous, right? But I think after 9-11, suddenly there was a recognition of uh, people who look like me, um, who are from very different parts of the world, but because of just how there's a lack of education around the world, I mean, around our country, around the, about the world, people just assumed that I was from the Middle East. And then it kind of worsened you know i would acutely feel it on the streets sometimes but also at airports it was quite crazy (laughs) but i think one thing i wanted to share i remember that i wanted to share earlier was this idea of the pendulum between um depression and anxiety and you know i've gone on a lot of silent meditation retreats um so i would highly recommend those but of course they are very strenuous so i would really encourage people to first build a practice before just jumping uh, deep in. But at that point, this was my mid-20s, I was really struggling with parts of myself that were, that I was still judging, that I wasn't fully accepting. And I was also struggling with this idea of pride itself. You know, in the LGBTQ world, there's this idea that I'm proud to be gay, I'm proud to be out, Mm. which is beautiful, right? Um, There's a, it's a way that we celebrate ourselves. But I think for me, I was like, there's still like something for me when I say that there's an inkling of like inferiority complex. Like I have to be proud, like as if there's something wrong with being this way. And it was at that moment, you know, one of the teachers on the retreat was also queer identified. He talked about his own journey and I felt that, oh, what I want to feel isn't proud. I want to feel honored to be in this body. Just as it is, with its anxiety, with its depression, <laughs> with its, you know, queerness, with its brownness, with all of those things. So I can fully belong in here. Yeah, and that really, I feel like, shifted my relationship with myself. This was, I think, about 10 years ago. Uh, maybe no less than that. Couldn't be that long. It was probably six or seven years ago. Because I came out to my parents, literally, a few weeks after that. <laughs> How did that go? Oh, my God. It was a mess. <laughs> oh, God. You <laughs> don't want to know. <laughs> Maybe you do. Um, I don't know if you've, any, if you've seen any, like, melodramatic, like, um, you know, old oh, school yes. movies. Or oh, all yes. Movies. <laughs> I mean, my parents are scientists. I mean, they're wonderful now. Like, they're so supportive and wonderful and loving. But this was, like, seven years ago. Um, 2013, what is that, eight years ago. And um, my mom was literally like banging her head against the wall. (laughs) 
Wow. But you know, Mark, the beautiful thing was this was happening in the past. Something would get kicked up inside me, like codependency or something where I'd want to take care of her and again, manage her. But because I'd had that realization, I knew there was nothing wrong with me. I understood her reaction. I respected it. It's okay for her to feel sorrowful and want something for her son that um, isn't who he is. And I was like, but this is who I am. I'm honored to be me. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah, that was, I f- and I feel like these types of incidents and similarly what's happened to me around, you know, race and ethnicity and other things, I'm like, oh my gosh, like we can really belong to ourselves um, fully. And that for me has been the opportunity. That's, I, I want to kind of close out there and, and come full circle because I feel like the goal is is belonging and honoring ourselves, but also seeking interconnection without sort of blame and judgment, right? Uh, feeling this sense like you described of, you know what, mom, you do you. I'm not going to save you. I'm not going to change who I am because of you, but I am still going to be there for you because you're my mom. I, I feel like that's the work of a lifetime. <laughs> Um, that is the work. And, 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 and you did a video with Sharon Salzberg, the famed meditation teacher. Yes. And she talked about with you her own painful past, which was oh very God. traumatic. And she talked about her journey to mindfulness as sort of being stuck in the pain of the past without any of the tools mm-hmm. to manage it. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to ask you, what are the tools that you use every day in your toolkit? Because the past doesn't go away. The feelings mm-hmm. still come up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's so true. And, you know, for me, one thing I want to add there is that, you know, Sharon is a beloved and a dear, dear teacher of mine and someone who's been a huge part of my healing journey, you know, her books, her talks, retreats with her. And, um, you know, one thing she says, you know, back to the tools around this is at any of those moments when, you know, judgment, blame, fear, things from the past get triggered, there's always the breath. And, you know, the interesting thing about the breath is that when we're focusing on the breath, we can't focus on anything else. It takes our entire attention. So it helps us kind of come back to the present moment. And That has been my learning. You know, we're going to jump between the past and the future. It's just going to happen. We're human, right? And, you know, we can be in the practice of remembering that we're here. We're here. We're here. And we're alive, right? Um, Other things that I've found helpful, um, and I teach this in my courses um, as a tool, is really becoming aware of body sensations. You know, that's been so helpful because it's, in our bodies. So in that moment of conflict, when someone has said something cruel or hurtful or our mind has received received it as such, what's happening in the body, right? Where is it contracted? Where is it tense? And kind of becoming a scientist of our own experience and seeing that these things are happening to us. And then through practice, we'll begin to see that they're happening to us, but they are not us. Oh, well, thank you so much, Anu. I really um, appreciate you and your work and, and your time with me today. Yes, thank you for having me.
That's it for today's show. Thank you to my producer, Mary Dew. Thanks to the team at HBR. I'm grateful to our guests for sharing their experiences and truths. For you, our listeners, who ask me to cover certain items and keep the feedback coming, please do send me feedback. You can email me. You can uh, leave a message on LinkedIn for me or tweet me at Mora AM. And if you love the show, tell your friends. Subscribe and leave a review. From HBR Presents, this is Mora Aaron's Mealy.